day, fellow Symphonians of the internet. My name is Ryan Smith, and this is SymphonyCast, where we talk to manly musicians to discover how they are musicianly men. The music you will hear in this episode is from the brother interviewed today, Brother Rich Crosby. Rich composed this piece, and the source is in the description. I will keep this short so we can jump straight into the interview with Rich, but I have one thing I was thinking about this morning. This fraternity has been able to change consistently up to the modern times because of brothers that did not stick with the status quo and asked questions. Brothers Lichtenberg and Monjovi are perfect examples of this. Uh, you will hear in the interview coming up the amount, of, the effort that they had as CPRs to reach out to fellow provinces to convince them to bring back uh, many traditions from the past, as well as their time of trying to restore the object to this fraternity. Just overall, our fraternity has been consistently one that has. Uh, whether it's CPRs or other brothers, trying to ask questions and try to improve this organization at times uh, with resistance from others, whether that is people uh, or brothers that were initiated at a different time, as in years past, people that, are, that were currently national president or province governors. Going back to brothers Lichtenberg and Monjovi and the efforts that they have put into this organization because they were willing to go against the status quo, look at where they are now. They are the authorities of this organization, or especially Brother Lichtenberg anyway, uh, as national president. Monjovi has served as president in the past, and also he does play a role in this, as is very obvious from his communications. And look at where we are now during the state of emergency. I just wanted to start thinking about that, where they are the authority figures in this. And consistently, we have relied on them for guidance for our organization in years past on where we should go. And a lot of what they say, we try to follow. I think that during this time this shows why it is important for our organization for brothers whether it's a, a collegiate brother at a chapter a cpr or even someone that is on the national executive committee to consistently be asking the question on why are we doing this how can we be better what can we do better even if at times it does have to change things it has benefited our organization in the past, and it's great to be able to have that conversation openly. It's just something I've been thinking about. I don't really want to dive into the politics behind all this, but I just wanted you guys to think about that as well, especially with this upcoming big day, November 30th, the emergency assembly meeting. It is happening a week ago from the day I'm recording this, November 23rd, and I'm excited. Like, I've been building up for this moment for not just the past two months when it was announced. Since the state of emergency in general, me and other CPRs started the discussion on why don't we just call for an assembly meeting? I, I, there were a couple in particular that really started thinking about that, as well as an emergency national council meeting, which would mean every chapter president being represented in that. But it's been... Almost five months now on the 27th, it will fit that. It's just interesting to think about how much this is built up. And I'm excited as just to be able to see my fellow CPRs again, see all these brothers, province governors. And even though it won't be for the best of circumstances, it's a very serious and somber time, but... I still can't wait to see all of them in general, and I can't wait to be able to talk to them again. It will be exciting. Now, I know there are concerns of especially the letter that Brother Lichtenberg released to the province governors last week saying that the national headquarters is going to be closed for Thanksgiving at that time, which I wish could have been brought up sooner. It could have been brought up when we were officially declaring this meeting 
or asking for it on September 30th. It would have been great to know that ahead of time that would be closed during Thanksgiving. But I know there's been concerns dealing with that on is it trespassing and what could possibly happen. But we just have to go in this with open hearts and minds. Speaking of which, I look forward to any brother that will be there at this meeting because... Even if you're not a part of the assembly, this does affect you. I'm really excited to be able to see you. And also, you have my utmost respect. If you are taking the time out of your Thanksgiving weekend, which I know is a sacrifice, as well as putting the money and time to travel here, yeah, you have my utmost respect, and I believe everyone in the room would agree to that. So I look forward to seeing you there. I would love to see you in the assembly. If you can't go for personal reasons, I completely understand. And I'm currently working with another brother to see if we could get this live streamed. Um, maybe have a, some good microphone equipment around as well as we'll probably just use a webcam. But it's mostly focused on the content, maybe not the quality. I think that would be important. Best thing you could do is be there to help legitimize this meeting, but if you can't, you could probably listen along, watch along. That'd be great. As well as I'll try to give coverage through SymphonyCast. We've talked a lot about the national politics on this podcast, and I thought this week before this upcoming meeting, we could take a moment to breathe and relax. That is why I was able to get Brother Rich Crosby on here. Brother Rich Crosby was initiated at the Ada-Omicron chapter in 1975 at the University of Cincinnati. He served as CPR for Province 3, Province Governor of Province 25 for over 30 years, Committee Man at Large, National Secretary Treasurer, and National President for one term in 1994-97 to and two terms from 2003-2009. to he is currently a professor of music at Eastern Kentucky University. I had a great conversation with Rich about Symphonia from the past, his time in leadership, and much more. I think you guys will really enjoy listening to this. Without further ado, here's Brother Rich Crosby. Big writ province twenty seven plus one. Uh, what did you come out of that with? What did what what were your favorite moments? Well, seeing that many guys involved in a ritual for so many new initiates, including especially Dave Fiddler's son Allardyce, seeing the father and son moment of pinning and all of that was just very moving to me. Um, it was nice to be a part of that and get to play the music for the ritual. That I agree. It was, it was overall, it was great to just be around all that many people. Um, and, and all the positive energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's, uh, go ahead and start, I guess, from the beginning. So how did you first join FIMU Alpha? Oh, that was an interesting, almost didn't happen kind of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was um, a freshman at the College Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati, and I was on the elevator in the conservatory with a friend, and we saw this hand-drawn sign that said, um, join Symphonia, and with the meeting time and everything like that, and it caught my eye because the J was drawn so poorly. I thought it said loin symphonia. What the heck? <laughs> and then as I read further, I thought, oh, a music fraternity. And I said to my friend, I think I ought to go check that out. There was a third person on the elevator grinning like a Cheshire cat who didn't introduce himself or anything, just stood there smiling. <laughs> and I later found out he was the vice president of the chapter. That um, accident was very fortunate for me because comes the night of the smoker, I was up in a practice room on the third floor practicing Rachmaninoff second, and I totally forgot. And <clears throat> the guys were all down in the 
um, room full of antique furniture from the 19th century called the Bower Room. And they had their punch and cookies bought and no, um, well, I'll call us pledges because that's what we were back then. Mm -hmm. No pledges showed up. And they were desperate because they already spent their money on the goodies. <laughs> so they're racking their brain. And the vice president was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The other day on the elevator, I heard a guy say he was interested. And he's up in the third floor practicing right now. So um, as I'm playing Rachmaninoff, I hear this tap, tap, tap in the little plexiglass window in the door. And I look up and there's all these faces scrunched up in it <laughs> and the door slowly opened and one of the fellows walked in and said excuse me were you interested in joining find you alpha and i um said an expletive of surprise that's tonight and so i grabbed my music and went downstairs and uh the rest is history so i almost missed it and what were your first impressions after you started getting more involved with your chapter? You mean during the probationary period? Or yes. The, oh, um, well, it was uh, nothing but hazing. I, I learned literally nothing about the nature of FIMU Alpha from my pledgeship. Um, and I kept thinking, you know, there's got to be more more to it than I'm seeing here. There's, there has to be a, a bigger reason than all this junk. And I almost depledged at one point. Um, they had a they had a thing called Inquisition, and it was uh, where they, you know, literally showed a bright light in your face and ask you rapid fire questions with the idea of making you feel stupid. And then they excuse you to the hallway, pretend to deliberate and call you back in and look to me from the shadows and said, it's the decision of this tribunal that you're not fit to be a symphonian. Oh, my gosh. We um, invite you to re-pledge at a later date. And then they escorted me out, at which point I went ballistic in the hallway, kicking the wall and throwing things around. And uh, the vice president, that same fellow I told you about, was trying to calm me down. I said, calm me down? Why? Wh uh, th these guys are planning to be my brothers and they're treating me like this? But uh, I did take a deep breath and go through the rest of it. It was um, the, well, the whole thing was pretty meaningless. They were some nice guys, but the chapter in the fraternity at large didn't seem to have much of a, cohesive anything it was very um what do you call it dispersed uh, philosophically each chapter was sort of an island and these guys uh had lost track of what it was all about as had many chapters but again i kept coming back to the idea that there just had to be something more than that and that's the reason i stuck with it yeah that just that sounds horrible uh that experience and once you stuck with it, so you're a collegiate brother, what actions did you try to take to either try to discover what it was about or to heal? I tried to, I wasn't sure where to look to discover. No one really had any information. But to heal, I tried to be the, um, the ultimate big brother. My big brother spent five minutes talking to me before my ritual. That's the sum extent of my time with him. I didn't even know who he was face to face until that moment. Oh, wow. So I compensated by um, spending a lot of time with my little brothers, taking them out to eat, um, maybe taking in a movie, sit up until we couldn't stay awake anymore, talking about fraternity and, and things like that. And I really enjoyed that sort of mentor role. And as I got older, um, in my doctoral program, I was the oldest guy in the chapter. In fact, it got to be a silly thing in the meeting when the president would say, is there any old business? The whole chapter would jump to their feet and sing <laughs> rich on a major triad. So, uh, yeah. Um, so I was known as old business. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I enjoyed that role and I managed to moderate all that stuff somewhat, but I wasn't able to get rid of it because there's nothing to take its place at that point. 
Did you have any officer positions during your time as a collegiate brother? I was vice president and then president, neither of which did I ever want. I wanted to be the, um, what we call it, the pledge master so that I could um, big brother the, the whole pledge class. And that's precisely the reason some of the more militant part of the chapter did not want me to do it. They wanted to tr have everyone treated like it's a boot camp. I see. And I wasn't willing to do that. So they always elected someone else. So uh, first of all, it's called Pledge Master. When did yeah. the change to fraternity education officer take place? Mm, into the late 80s, I'd, I'd heard the term FEO before, but it didn't take hold. The National Fraternity started emphasizing that about the time I was a CPR, as I recall. See, are there any other position names that changed throughout time? I'm just curious. Well, there none come to mind right now. That was the big one, and it was a whole change of philosophy that went with that term. Mm -hmm. So, you became president, or first vice president, then president. How? Or how has how did the culture of your chapter change over time? Like, what differences were there from the time you first got pinned, or were a you know part of the pledge class to when you graduated or left the institution? Um, the culture of it didn't change much for a long time until the chapter had nearly killed itself through attrition, and no respectable people wanted to join it. <clears throat> Um, but then a, a group came in that wanted to try and save it. And unfortunately, they brought in a lot of Kappa Kappa Psi traditions rather than Phimiopa traditions, but they did get a large Same. number of people. And that's the period like during my doctoral program when we managed to tone things down quite a bit. But it was a, a big emphasis on brotherhood at the very least. And uh, there were some good musicians in the chapter, too, but there wasn't a, a clear tie-in between the two things. So how did your collegiate experience differ from what you're currency, currently experiencing today? Well, um, Today, I get to enjoy the fruits of my labors and those of some others who helped kind of find the, um, the philosophical center of what we were about. You know, um, <clears throat> we owe Brother Monjovi a lot in that regard because he's the one that figured out the key to how it all fitted, fitted together. And uh, I learned a lot about the inner meaning from him, not vice versa. So um, when I was national president the first time, I talked a lot about music and brotherhood. And he told me that I was the first national president since 1917 that talked about ideals, which I found astounding. So it's more of an organization based on a philosophical underpinning now. And chapters don't um, do the kind of things, at least to, certainly to the extent that we did back then that would have gotten us expelled. Um, there's, there's positive things musically and fraternally and um, for the community that chapters do, and it's very affirming to see how much it's improved over the years. What did presidents talk about before if they didn't talk about ideals? Uh, I'm, I'm just mystified by that. It was just general discussion things like, um, the fraternity is doing great. Um, we're um, going to have our next national convention here, and isn't it great? Come be part of the fellowship. It didn't really deal with any substance. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Or how that would be different from talking about ideals as a yeah. national precedent. So yeah. after you were done, at least as a student, uh what was next after that? Well, I got hired at Eastern Kentucky University and 
they needed a second faculty advisor. So I was elected to that for two years. And um, <clears throat> I had been a CPR during my last year of uh, my doctoral program and was at the headquarters for CPR Convo and all that sort of stuff and met a lot of other guys who were fired up because the, the CPR movement was still very nascent and full of vitality and wanting to really return to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was a very heady time. So I brought, I brought that back to um, EKU and when the governorship in province 25 opened up, um, folks remembered me as the, that CPR who seemed to get it and had stayed with it through all those years. So hence I became governor at my very first national, right, right before my first national convention, Bill Dieterer called me up and appointed me May 1st of 1988. And I went to the convention that summer and was elected committeeman at large. <laughs> So what were, so you became committee man at large. What were some of the, I don't know if challenges is the right word, or what were some of the goals that you had when you were elected to that position? Well, one of the big ones, which I've never been able to see through, unfortunately, was to have a fraternity where the word alumni never meant past tense again. I, I said that directly to the delegates. And um, I just wanted to contrib contribute to the positive movement forward of the whole national organization. You... Um, I was the first of that CPR generation to make it onto the National Executive Committee and then to be become president, other than Curtis Shirley. Um, he was the National Collegiate Representative or CPR Chair, whichever one of those single positions preceded the situation that we have now. I was the first national president to have been from that council and the CPR council has um, been the feeder program for a lot of our best national leaders since. Going back to the alumni or your goal for making alumni past tense, have you seen any progress on that over the years? Uh, very little and next to none over the last number of years. I guess um, maybe it's right. because I am alumni now. Um, I guess, what are some ways to be able to help change that besides trying to remind people that, you know, you're a Symphonian for life kind of idea? Well, it takes the change at the, at the top, thinking in terms of that being a high priority. It's easy to pay lip service to alumni, but to actually do something to give them a, a actual involvement not necessarily a voting involvement, but helping them to form groups and do things that would be of interest to alumni and still doesn't feel like they're a part of it. That's That's been a big challenge and it has not been um, a priority, unfortunately. We can do that and still keep the focus that the national fraternity is predominantly based on the collegiate experience, but that shouldn't be the only thing. And it's sort of been that way for a long time. What alumni things we've had, other than some local efforts forming uh, alumni associations, there's a few of those, but uh, with like no support from the national fraternity at all, they're doing it on their own. How, how many terms did you serve as committee man at large? Just one. And then I went directly from there to be national president. Oh. I was nominated from the floor. I was not the nominee. Interesting. And uh, even more interesting, I was never the nominee except until my third term. <laughs> I was always the insurgent. <laughs> so I guess my question is, how often does that happen? Or how, how often has that happened? I thought the nomination committee, at least for a national president, does an okay-ish job. They have... Um, over the last number of years, but back then it was a political move because they didn't um, like me and my friends and what we were trying to do to um, resurrect the, the what we call the true fraternity with the um, values and such. They were, many of the older generation had joined it as something to put on their resume and just to hang out and have a good time. But 
this idea of a vital brotherhood based on any kind of philosophical underpinning was um, uncomfortable to them, I think. So it was a, a clash of generations and cultures. And for that first time as national president, how, was it just one term then? Yes. Okay. It was, you could only serve one term at that point. Um, oh, really? And interestingly enough, the the move to change that to allow a president to succeed himself was because the National Collegiate Representative during my first term felt like I was the only person that could lead the fraternity and he wanted to change the Constitution to allow me to do that. Well, you can imagine the political sniping that went on. Oh, Rich is going to appoint all the province governors that will support changing the Constitution. <laughs> you know, so I had to say, listen, guys, I will not be a candidate. Let's just get that off the table. Debate this on its merits. And... Um, make your decision. Well, once I did that, all the gossiping died down and it voted, they voted for it overwhelmingly. So then when I came back in 2003, then I was able to succeed myself that next time. So I'm actually the first guy that got to take advantage of it after all. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, I just feel like this is ironic. It sounded like it sounds like those arguments can still be or somewhat still argued today at times. Oh, they are. Yeah. They are. Um, but what were some changes that you are proud of that you made during your first term as national president? I, um, I think one of the things I'm the most proud of was I broke this old idea that a province governor could only be a college professor. Uh, My premise was, hey, why don't I appoint the best qualified, most dedicated person, regardless of what their career is? Well, you'd think I was um, screaming heresy or something like that. (laughs) But I never had one of my appointments defeated. And so I gradually started remaking the province governor's ranks. And we brought a lot of new new guys, many of whom had been CPRs on board and gradually were doing grassroots work to change the fraternity from the ground up. What were some, because it sounds like there were some differences or ideological differences between province governors of old versus, I guess, that change. What was seen in the position (laughs) before that? The province governors before that, most of them didn't visit their chapters their main experience being province governors was to come to the national convention power brokers about who would be elected to offices and stuff like that. But in between, they didn't do squat. I can't say that about everyone, but I can say that about most of them. Did they run workshops or, or what, did all this fall onto the CPR? The CPR was still a new position. Um, it did when I was a, undergrad it didn't exist and it only came about in the early 1980s so uh, if the governor wasn't doing anything no one was doing anything that hence you know the issue of island chapters everyone was kind of on their own some provinces did have a good central figure as the province governor holding things together but everyone was kind of doing their own thing there were even a number of different versions of the ritual all being circulated and performed at the same time. Yeah, there was no cohesion. So you served your time as national president that first term. Mm -hmm. Uh, What type of, or I guess so after that, did you take a break or did you? Well, state province governor. Yes, yes. I was going to ask about that a little bit later, but I guess now is the perfect time. When did you become province governor? 88. 88, okay. And how did you balance the responsibilities of province governor while being committee man at large national president? Committee man at large wasn't too hard. National president, I, I don't feel like during my first term I quite did it justice. The guys were all very forgiving because they were very happy to have me as the national president. And I still did the workshops, but I couldn't do all my visits. They didn't object, but I felt bad about it. 
the second and third terms, though, I did. I felt like I needed to set the example no matter how much I had piled on my plate because you can only lead by example. So in between your two terms as national president, were you just province governor or did you do other things on top of that? When I left office in 97, I was just governor and I was um, chairman of the awards committee. And then in uh, 2000, I ran for PG chair and won that. So I spent the next three years continuing to build and mold the province governor's council. And I wanted them to be as collegial um, as the uh, CPR's council had been when I was part of that. The governors didn't really have a whole lot of unity at the time. And during my first term, it was still really divided between old and new. But uh, the, uh, the old gave up the ghost after 2003. And I completed the revolution of appointed leadership and it became an entirely different ballgame. We still feel that to this day, like, because I talked to Dave Friday a lot, and he's brought up pretty much how the province governor council feels like his chapter. So that camaraderie mm -hmm. is definitely there. It certainly wasn't before. Oh, yeah. Um, what were... What was the premise, or when you did run for national president a second time, what were, what was going on at that point in the fraternity that led up to that election? The main thrust in the fraternity at that moment was the issue of, shall we restore the object and get rid of the five purposes, which I had to learn as a pledge. And uh, I was uh, with the movement of the younger guys to do that. The older guys were perfectly happy with what they'd already memorized. <clears throat> so uh, I was, I had a habit of going to the CPR convocations even after I was no longer CPR, just for the fellowship. And at the one in 2002, um, a, a half a year before the convention, President Ramsey and I were there and he gave a state of the fraternity talk and the CPRs asked him about his opinion on the, the object. And I don't know that he was against it, but it wasn't really his top priority. And they, when they asked me, I said, I think this absolutely needs to happen. And so starting the, right after that conversation with them, people started pulling me aside and say, Rich, can we talk you into running for president again? And I was flabbergasted because I <laughs> had no thought of that. Um, I hadn't felt like my first term was particularly successful. There was so much strife going on. And, but they, uh, they kept at it. So I, I made the decision that I would accept that. It was a very you know, affirming moment to have all these young guys want me to help complete the revolution in the, in the philosoph philosophical area. You know, Monjovi and Lichtenberg had been pushing this idea of restoring the object and had traveled the country um, explaining why they thought it was important to the, oh. the each province. I think they went to each province. Oh, wow. And so apparently that was what the fraternity in general wanted because I won by a significant margin. And um, we made that change. And then in, um, in three years after that, we restored the ritual to essentially, um, essentially what it was in 1926 with some changes for language, current language and uh, stuff that was maybe anachronistic. But, and then um, the last goal I had, I gave to Mark Lichtenberg was to fix the governing documents. Oh, really? The national constitution and the, what we call the general regulations for chapters had all sorts of contradictions between the two of them because they would fix one thing and it's like whack-a-mole, then you don't see the implication that another thing is out of, out of whack. So he, um, he led the effort to try and clean that up and it was a greatly improved document that came out of that. I want to go back to National Convention 2009. That was in Orlando that year, correct? 
it was yeah. yeah what was going through your head uh during the national assembly meetings as well as the election itself you mean when i was finishing like when you were running for the position no i i finished my third term in 2009 ah man okay i'm losing track of time when <laughs> there's did... a lot to go yeah ah wow okay <laughs> so when did you begin your second term then 2006 2006 my bad okay so 2006 wasn't that also in orlando yeah there was 2006 and 09 both there we liked it so much because <laughs> it had this great 24-hour pool with a bar you know you could ask for more <laughs> perfect so uh when you were away from the bar when it was national convention time what was going through your head for running for that election again going to the assembly meetings all that stuff it uh well, like I say, that's the only time that I was the official nominee. So, and I knew that would be the last one. So I thought, you know, since I have six years, all told, if I win this last term, we can really nail everything down and um, bring, uh, what, do you think, what would you call it, um, balance to the force. <laughs> <laughs> um and it was, it was a time of uh, a great deal of philosophical agreement about who we are. People got along quite well. And uh, it was sort of an era of good feeling. What would you say for yourself individually, some self-reflection here, how as a Symphonian have you changed from your first term as national president to your election, your third term? Well, my first term as national president, I was still somewhat of an insecure guy, um, a bit introverted, but living as an extrovert. And uh, that much pressure to be in charge and make big decisions was all kind of new to me and the strife of dealing with one half of the fraternity hating the other half was uh, quite a lot to try and hold together. I, um, I felt like at the end of my first term, I just needed to get the ship into port so that others could carry on. So it was not a, it was not a happy, happy time. But, you know, having lived through that, by the time the, the greater battles came along, I was afraid of nothing. I had a hardened shell on the outside and nothing really intimidated me anymore. So I was able to cope with some very large challenges and, and not flinch. Now, so it was, it was all a growth experience. Basically. Yeah, I see it. Now I kind of want to just be a bit more reflective in general here. Uh, you brought up earlier that, especially when you were still a collegiate brother, you really liked the idea of being a mentor, mentorship, and mm -hmm. you've carried that on since. Uh, what were some lessons that you learned through that that you would like to share with other brothers? There is... Um... There's really nothing like the bond between a big and little brother because that's sort of a microcosm of the fraternity as a whole. We are constantly moving on in our careers and in life, but we get a chance to help the, the newer guys to experience all the excitement and fulfillment that we did. And uh, there's really nothing quite like that. And getting to be a national officer means you get to do it on a much larger scale. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. What were some cultural changes you've seen through Symphonia throughout time, both on the national level and chapter? Like, I know there were a lot, so I'm talking about big differences here. Well, the hazing culture, for one, the entire national organization came to up to be of one mind about that and saying that it's incompatible with who we are 
also the idea of um, the underlying values of the ritual being a unifying force. There was no unifying force back then. Now there is. And everyone goes through that same exalted experience as their fundamental experience. And then everything proceeds from that. That's an entirely different cultural <laughs> um, mindset. And um, then, you know, once the organization was healed of the strife that it was going through, it allowed us to do other things like, uh, you know, the philanthropic thing that we do, the Mills Music Mission that grew out of um, Mon Jovi and the CPR's council. There was no outreach prior to that. We were just really? barely good if we could um, get a recital together once a year, each chapter. Um, so that's been a very positive development too. As well as what differences have you noticed like uh, from each generation of Symphonians that have come through? Are, are there any characteristic differences? Because like, for example, you were talking about how the CPRs were fired up at that one point to bring the change needed. Mm -hmm. Well, at that point, since the CPRs were really the most highly motivated force and the governors were sort of the throwbacks. The CPRs had all the energy and um, drive on their side. Since the governor's council has matured a great deal, there's not a need for CPRs to be revolutionaries anymore in most cases, nor to act as a province governor, but to be the chief among equals and uh, help um, build brotherhood within the province while the governor does his thing. So that's a very positive development, too. What were some of the, I guess, most challenging or toughest choices you have made as a Symphonian? Or what was one of them? Well, when some uh, province governors were not doing their jobs or misbehaving, and uh, putting us in, in jeopardy, I had to just bite the bullet and call them up and saying, I'm sorry, brother, your, your services are no longer required. And I had that phone conversation with each one of them. And that's not easy. Um, these, some of them were people that I had been friends with for a number of years, but their um, behavior couldn't be tolerated. That's not the fun part of being national president. I didn't have to do it much, thank goodness. I think I may have removed four or five governors in my entire time as national president. Usually I'd try and rehabilitate them if I could. When you were first uh, going through that, what were some lessons that you learned? Going through that awful experience of having to make those decisions? Yes. Well, I just would always go back to my oath, you know. It was awful for me, but the guys elected me to do what's best for the organization. And so I had to put aside my own feelings and wishing I didn't have to be mean and just do what was best for the whole fraternity and uh, suck it up. You know? That was um, <laughs> That was not my nature back then, but I've... Like I say, I've developed an outer shell over time. and I'm not afraid to do what's necessary now, but that was never fun. And I, um, I never did it without a very good reason. How does Symphonia tie into your personal life? Because I know Five Me Alpha takes up a lot of time, but you know, you're also yeah. a professor. It does, but um, that whole experience as a collegiate and then learning about the values and uh, how that inspires me, it sort of informs everything I do. It um, informs the sort of teacher that I am, the sort of mentor that I am. And I don't know, it's made me the, the man that I am. All right, I got two final questions here. So 
This one is to tie into recent events during this state of emergency that's been going on. I'd love to hear your wisdom and insight on this. Uh, Once we reach a conclusion on this state of emergency, let's assume it's for the best that the fraternity is able to move forward. What do you believe are the next steps our fraternity has to take to recover? Whoever the next president is, is going to have a lot of rebuilding to do. Not just finding people for positions, but uh, rebuilding morale because it's taken a a sucker punch over the last number of months. And people not only will need to do the job, but they'll need to feel good about doing it again and feel like they're valued and um, not to be toyed with. So um, the next president is gonna have a lot to do in that regard. And then um, we need to have a conversation about where we go from here. Um, maybe the alumni thing is, is part of that, but now that the philosophy of why we are has been settled, what's the next step? And I'm not wise enough to have that answer all by myself. But that was always one of the things that um, I was blessed with being um, regarded as a consensus builder. And so the next president is going to need to be a consensus builder and bring people together, listen to all the ideas and find common ground so that we can all agree where we're going. What can individual collegiate brothers do to help in the little ways they can? Nationally, there's not a whole lot the individual brothers can do other than live the philosophy, be the kind of men we want them to be and go out into the world and be examples of the best of what we are. That's something that every collegiate brother and every brother of any stage of their symphonia life can be. And then those of us that have higher offices um, need to do uh, a heavier lift, but it's all towards the same sort of goal. Find me Alpha, I always, um, it was probably, a, I hope it wasn't arrogant of me to think that I wanted Phi Mu Alpha to be the um, fraternity that healed itself and showed the the way back to the rest of the Greek world, saying, you know, you can get past this awful hazing culture that you're caught in because they've all lost their way at one time or another. We found our way back, and I hope we can be the the so-called light unto the world as an example of how you can heal yourself and how a um, dedicated brotherhood can treat itself, treat the other members and um, represent the organization to the outer world because the world is watching. The last question I have for you, I've asked everyone that's come on this podcast as well as I genuinely like to hear all the different responses. My question is why Symphonia? Well, in America today, there are not a lot of ways for young men to learn to work together and grow to be better men, cooperatively and collectively. And we have the added benefit, not only of providing that opportunity as sort of a laboratory experience for maturity, but our unique gift of music being the thing that um, ties us together. We're the only fraternity like this. We're, you know, a social special interest fraternity, I guess you would call us. Um, But we're the only one that has music as our special gift and our special bond. So that's, that's why Symphonia, I think. And speaking from personal experience, it's had such a positive impact on my life, the friends I've gained, the um, maturity I've gained, the um, focus I've gained, it's all made me a better man. And I wanna make sure that younger guys that are considering how to get to a place where they (laughs) feel like they have control of their life and they have a purpose, they'll give us a serious look and see that there's something very positive here 
that they can be a part of. You know, the the younger generations now, I've said it to my students many times, one of the things I like about the millennials is no matter what else you can say about them, it's a generation that wants to believe in something and to contribute to something that has significance. And I think this is it. So I think we're ready made for a world that's hungry for some sort of meaning. And I hope um, guys will see that. And I hope our leaders will use that as their way to reach out and convince fellows to, um, to join a brotherhood. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be on this podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Um, I look forward to, to hearing it and um, hopefully we'll get some positive uh, reaction from it. Please subscribe on your favorite platform so you can see the next episode when it is available. Feel free to give a five-star rating and I have a challenge for all of you this week. If you like what you heard, share this podcast with one other brother so they can enjoy it as well. There is some great information in here that can help even newly initiated brothers understand what it truly means to be a Symphonian. I am Ryan Smith, and you are listening to Symphonicast, wishing all brothers good night.